1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month.
2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today, another in the Life and Time series that you enjoyed during the pandemic. I guess there wasn't much on, but we like making them and learning about our panellists. This episode is all about Nikki Bandini, so expect to hear about mid-90s Arsenal, football Italia and living in the US. As most of you know, Nikki came out publicly as transgender about four years ago. We will, of course, discuss that, but this is about her love of football and the journey in the game that has led her to be sitting on a Zoom call with me and Barry right now. This is the Guardian Football Weekly. Barry, hello. Hello. Hi, Nikki. How are you?
3: I'm all right. Yeah. I'm a bit nervous. It's weird talking are about yourself. You? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like it's it's so silly, but like as a journalist, like you spend all your time talking about other people and like when the lens is turned on you, it's, it's a bit different.
2: Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to. In the intro, it made it sound like all your career had been leading to the moment where you were on a Zoom (laughs) call with me and Barry. It has, obviously. Of course, a career highlight. Um, Lots of people got in touch. DB says, no questions. Looking forward to this one. I listen to every Football Weekly, but I hit download with greater urgency when Nikki is on. I really enjoy the way she thinks about football. So I agree with that, actually. I don't even sound surprised. And I also like how all the panelists think about football, as I cover myself. Uh, A storyteller opening the door to new and imaginative ways of loving the game, so no pressure uh nikki uh let's start with an an easy one there um i feel like i sort of should know these things about panelists but i don't where were you born where did you grow up
3: uh so i was born in london grew up in london um my dad is italian he grew up in italy and moved to italy when he was in his 20s met my mum and uh, they sit in london so yeah i am um, I, I was born and grew up in london
2: whereabouts
3: all over really i mean sort of west-ish mostly but like we um we moved seven times, I think, between me being born and and me going to university. So like we moved a lot. Um I, I was born in North London, but yeah, we, we really bounced around. Um and your
2: earliest memories of football.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a bit hard, isn't it? Because I, I don't know if other people have like more clearly like boxed memories than, than I do. I think like when I sort of go to like a certain bit of youth, it's all a bit blurry, but I'm pretty sure my first memory of football is is really like the 1990 World Cup um because that's the first time when I remember like really paying attention to it and I again like this is this is still pretty young so I don't remember it very clearly but I remember the sort of thing of everyone being around the telly together and watching this big sporting event and I really remember the third fourth game almost more than the games before I remember the games before it like a little bit and I sort of always wonder with memories like that how much do I remember it and how much have I just re-watched it as an adult and sort of superimpose those things but I, I really remember the third fourth game because there was this big discussion in the household about whether we were going to support england or italy yeah. because i've got an older brother and i've got an italian dad and i've got an english mum, and so like you had to like pick a side and i'm sure you you didn't but it felt like you definitely did as a kid um and uh and i picked italy and i don't have like a really like logical because i was six uh well six or when was the um the fourth game? my, my birth in the summer six or seven years old I, I just re- realized I was completely like literally giving people my exact age there which is not <laughs> a thing I didn't <laughs> to do it well. there you go. Um, yeah I um I I chose Italy and I, I felt like it was because of like a few characters like I know everyone was crazy for Scalacci my dad was crazy for Scalacci I really loved Walter Senga and I remember having been sort of quite fronted because people got quite angry about him after they went out um, but I I liked him because he was very, I think as a kid, I was very drawn to quite like extroverted people, like people who stood out. And like Zenga had that thing of like on the pitch, like you, you noticed him. Like obviously, like goalkeepers you notice more anyway, because they're different, like they're the ones who are different to everyone else. But he also had a way of doing it that was very sort of on the front foot, you know, making himself visible, coming out more than he probably should have done sometimes. And 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 that I was drawn to. Um and I think probably on top of that, there was like another part of it, which is just like my older brother was sort of by character a bit more sort of quiet than I was. And in our household, somehow this got sort of told as a story of well, it's English to be reserved and quiet, and it's Italian to be outspoken and loud
2: so so he chose England, did he? I mean, he I don't, did right. Yeah.
3: I think he's. I think he's. I think he's switched over the years because I mean, we we watched the 2006 final together, and and he was unambiguous in enjoying that. And and honestly, like when I've talked to him more recently about it, I think he, I think he finds it easier to support in Italy than England as well.
2: So did you? So you sort of chose Italy then, and then it grew. Then your sort of love of Italian football sort of grows from there.
3: Possibly? I honestly think I, it is probably still like another few years before I'm really properly engaged in football. I think it's really interesting like how we come to like these, these sort of things that become huge parts of our lives. Because even though the, the World Cup was a big deal and it was in Italy, my dad wasn't really a football fan. My dad was really the only sort of, well, no, his brother isn't that much of a football fan either. But a lot of the Italian family are football fans and, and he wasn't. My dad liked tennis. But what he really liked my dad was being Italian, as ridiculous as that sounds. Like he right. you know, like there was <laughs> no. a World Cup in Italy. So he was incredibly proud of the fact there was a World Cup in Italy and we could all talk about Italy and and how great it is. And um and uh he uh he you know getting behind the Italian national team was was a big thing. But once it was over he was again not fussed about football. So I didn't really pay attention to it again for a while. And um you know this is sort of one of the things where like it's hard to talk about this in a way that isn't a bit odd because I am trans, but like I went to an all boys school and I think yeah. that for me coming to football again, like in a more sort of concerted way, it's partly just because I went to school and like everyone liked football. Like I wasn't that fussed about football when I first went to that school at, uh, at eight years old. Like I know I had like other things I was interested in before the age of eight. And like, you know, in the breaks, everyone played football and it was like, OK, and I wasn't very good at it, but like I joined in. And like, I think a lot of it for me, like grows from there. Like, you know, you, you play football because the other people who you're sort of um, stuck with for most of the day, that's what they want to do. Most people
0: in the UK of a certain age got into Italian football because of James Richardson and his shows on Channel 4 every Saturday and Sunday. Mm. I remember it was quite the ritual in my house. Anyway, my dad and I would would watch the Saturday morning Gazetta and it was always you know tremendous fun, and it was a, an insight into this world that we didn't know anything about. Um, and actually, just you talking about Walter Zenga, uh, my, my abiding memory of Walter Zenga is hair jewelry. He always has a, a chain flapping around outside his shirt, which. You know, back in the days when footballers were still allowed to wear jewellery. And he seemed to chew gum like nobody's business. More than Sam Allardyce, more than Sir Alex. But I guess Nicky, that you were probably a bit too young to watch Jimbo's show at the time, were you?
3: I, I definitely like watched it a bit. Like I probably not the very first episodes of it, but I was definitely watching um I was definitely watching some football Italia back then. Again, it was sort of a thing that you could do with dad that was like a thing that he sort of even though he didn't care about the football, like he was just sort of happy to like point to places and like talk about like, oh, you know, Italy basically. Um, I don't think it was, um, yeah, I, I don't know what year Jimbo started with that, but no, I, we definitely had that on. And that was definitely a thing I watched sometimes growing up. I don't know if it was ever like such a fixed ritual and probably more, you know, what then becomes the sort of regular football watching at a certain point is Arsenal, um, which, was really again like slightly me being a follower because my brother started supporting arsenal and uh and and i copied him
2: <laughs> just before we go on to arsenal did because your dad loved being italian so much like did he mm-hmm. like was your house quite italian like i have this i have this cliched image of you know you know nonna's secret recipe huge <laughs> plates of meatballs and all that <laughs> kind of stuff
3: I think there was some like real contradictions with my dad because like he was hugely proud of, of being Italian and wanted to talk about it a lot but also like it was really important to him that my brother and I spoke like properly like and I you know I, I'm i aware that I have quite like a, a BBC RP sort of way of talking and like I do think that was like a really important thing to my my dad because I think he felt sometimes he was um, discriminated against mm-hmm. back in in you know his first time when he came to England, especially probably before, you know, I was around, like I think when he was first there in the twenties, I think being a sort of, um, an Italian immigrant was, was a thing for a while that got you sort of a certain look down on in, in London. And so there was that going on. Um, but I mean, no, there was lots of sort of, you know, we had, um, big boxes of VHSs of italian comedians and like things like that i don't know what make it like an italian household my mum was english and did all the cooking but right. she definitely cooked like italian food like she definitely had like learned the things that my dad wanted to eat and and cooked that um so i don't know it was it was definitely italian in some ways i mean like there's some things that like are stupid that i think um and not like particularly profound but you then realize that oh, it was like isn't like something that's happening in most kids households which is my dad would come home from work every day and eat bread with olive oil like he didn't he'd have like always like not every day but like a lot of the time it would be like so, sort of vaguely fresh bread and yeah. you have olive oil with it and it's stupid right that's not a big deal but like yeah most most English kids parents weren't doing no. that so like there were, there were things for sure
0: what was he putting the balsamic vinegar in
3: no, 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 oh, no! Just right. salt and pepper. The balsamic thing when like it became a trend in England, like years later, I was like, "What's this balsamic nonsense?" I don't know. <laughs> but Italy's so like that. Like, there's like really like rules are very strict in Italy, but they're often like completely about like wherever specifically you grow up. So like one place will say that's absolutely the way to do it, another place will be, like you shouldn't do that at all.
2: You tweeted about junior gunners bus trips <laughs> when we canvassed for questions. Tell us about junior gunners bus trips
3: at some point, as I say, my, my brother, I think started having an interest in Arsenal before I did really. Um, you know, I, I have, um, very vague memories of, 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 of things like, um, the, the, the winner at Anfield. And I, I think that's not even necessarily a memory it's something that sort of got superimposed afterwards. I don't know, like stuff like that. Um, but, um, at a certain point, we did sort of start going to some games and we went to Arsenal games. My dad would take us. My dad again, wasn't even that interested. He was, you know, it was good like that. My dad, I have to say like, he wasn't interested in football. There were other places he'd rather be, but he took us. Um, And at some point um, we did some away trips as well, which was a thing. I, I don't even know if it's a thing now because as like an adult, you're so much more aware of like how much harder this must be to organize in terms of like having like adults who are background checked, approved and all these things. But yeah, like, the junior gunners used to basically just run away trips where you'd go to you'd go to Highbury and you'd get on the bus and there'd be a few adults and a bus for the kids and they'd take you to an away game and they'd drop you off back there at the end of the day and when I look like back on it, like it just seems a bit mad because you'd have I don't know what it was like thirty or forty kids from probably I would guess maybe like ages of like eight to 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 mid teenage years and where you got sort of put in stadiums really varied like sometimes you'd be in with the away fans and sometimes you'd be in the the family enclosure and like I remember going to Old Trafford and we lost and we were just surrounded by United fans and like they weren't being nice to us because we were kids like they they were like you know in our faces celebrating all the rest of it like I remember that I remember going to a Middlesbrough game where we won and then like on the bus, God, that's a
2: journey as well. Coach right. like, like, to Middlesbrough.
3: I mean, again, as an adult, you have a different perspective, right? Like probably for our parents, it was like great, they're gone for day. Of course, like, yeah, out of the way on the whole weekend day. Um, but yeah, I remember like being on the on the bus back from Middlesbrough, and like one kid, Started I, I think we won three two. Like was doing the gesture of the school and out the window, at a car on the way back. And then suddenly you had all these Middlesbrough fans like leaning out the windows, swearing at us, like <laughs> doing wanker gestures. Like, <laughs> it was a really weird thing when I look back on it, but it was it was fun. Like, you know, as a kid, like all of that stuff seems like very like silly. But United game in particular, I do remember thinking like this is a bit uncomfortable. Like there's some very aggressive people around and like we're children or like early teenagers.
2: Yeah. The junior used bus was slightly different. I mean, I, I seem to remember, my, I never went to one without my dad. When are going to Watford away and just somebody a kid behind me eating too many flying saucers and just hurling up like the, the sugariest, sweetest vomits on a coach to Watford
3: I remember like one of the bus trips like because my mum would give us like I don't know pack lunch or whatever and like one time she'd given us these pepper armies they were like turkey pepper armies and I remember opening it and, like the second you opened it you're like this stinks like, yeah you're in this yeah. bus full of people and you're like oh god I'm that kid <laughs> who
2: were who were your heroes then footballing heroes
3: yeah. I, again, like, I think Arsenal players, like it it fits in the same mold as the Zenger thing to some extent because it's like the ones who are most expressive and most colorful were the ones i I love the most. So like I I remember being a really big fan of Paul Merson. And of course, Ian Wright, like Ian Wright was absolutely hero number one because he scored all the goals and he was, um such like a brilliant character. And like, I i can yeah, like Ian Wright was really one of those people who, like, I remember at the time, like I would get like, personally upset when people were critical of him and I remember like even after like when he was sort of making his first sort of moves into do- doing tv stuff and there was like some people who were being hostile to him and like I would take it really personally about Ian Wright because he just to me was just this totally like pure joyful character and of course nobody's totally pure and joyful but it has been really so sort of lovely seeing him develop into like a broadcaster who I still absolutely adore and who is um yeah I think one of the one of the best out there, frankly. Yeah,
2: and a, and a national treasure, isn't he? Like no, Nobody can dislike Ian
3: I, Wright. I
0: hated Ian Wright. Did you? Why? Player. I hated him. Yeah. I don't know. I thought he had, I don't know, a cockiness and a swagger and a, a nasty streak that I think I'd admire now in players, but... For some reason I, I just didn't particularly like Arsenal and he seemed to embody <laughs> everything I didn't like about Arsenal. And now I, I couldn't love Ian Wright mm-hmm. more, but uh it's weird. Weird just how our our opinions completely differ.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sort of fast forward uh, and to, to sort of when you decided to work in football. I mean I don't know if I've sort of missed a huge chunk of, you know, from being a kid <laughs> to being to thinking about what you're gonna do with yeah. with your life. <laughs> when was the moment when you thought oh, this could be a profession for me
3: yeah I, I do sometimes think like there's a certain amount of it was like falling in by accident which is crazy when you think about how competitive an industry it is and and how hard it is to do um when i was at university i had one sort of like again it wasn't even as direct like this is a step along the path but like a thing that happened was um i went to warwick university and i was there right as they were launching um well it wasn't the launch it's the second year or something of of the student university tv channel which back then was you know calling it a channel was a stretch I don't know what they do now but back then it was basically we'd sort of all make our little programs and put them together for ourselves and like I think like once a week they aired our stuff in the student union for like 20 minutes or something um but I'd heard about it and I went along to like the uh, student um to like that they had a, they had a day like at the beginning of this of the university uh, year where they were like right we're going to elect our heads of departments and I went along sort of out of curiosity as much I think. I just kind of wanted to meet people and see if it was something I was interested to do and they were like oh do you want to put your name down for head of department and I was like I don't know like what have you got and it was like a head of news and like a head of comedy and then it was a head of sport and I was like yeah sure put me down for the head of sport and then like there was this like election in this I don't know it's like a Roman university. And there were sort of, people were coming up and giving these pitches about why they should be the head of news or the head of sport, head of documentaries, whatever. It's all very like, you know, in that student way, like it makes it sound very grand when it isn't. Like it's, you know, it's- Yeah, it's really tragic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's for like 20, like, you know, gawky students in a a room together. Um, But anyway, when it got to the sport, like no one else stood up, it was just me. And so I still went up there and was like, I don't know what to say. And so I made all sorts of, Absolutely impossible promises about like things I was going to do. Oh yeah, we're going to live broadcast like you know the top university sports teams games to the to the union. Things that were just technically not within the realms of what we could do. Anyway, so I got that and spent a year doing, um, sort of a uh, uh, terrible shows for um Warwick University TV, but had a lot of fun doing it. Learned some stuff about how all that stuff works, which is really interesting. Then kind of left it for a while because I finished university and I I had like a real interest at the time of working in TV. So I came out of university and my sort of first career job, it was a winding path even to this, but my first career job is um, is working as a a researcher and runner um, for a, a TV documentary company and um, on a big word series that um, was for BBC called Border Dash and Piffle. It was actually a really fun thing to work on. Um had Victoria Corrin um, hosting it who in her sort of peak poker playing days. Remember there was always like a negotiation of like, can we start a filming day at like 10 a.m. And she'd be like, oh, it's so early. Like that was <laughs> I did that. And um during that, was hankering a bit for like something more urgent. Cause we spent like nine months making this TV series, which was fun, but it was it was slow, slow going. I was thinking I could skip a step and I've realized by skipping a step I've made this more confusing. (laughs) Uh, Because basically, right, so because I had sort of been interested in doing that TV work, right after university, I took a one-year working visa in Canada because you could, I found out from someone at university that like you were entitled to, as a British citizen, like just have a one-year working visa in Canada up to the age of 30. I thought, I want to do that. That sounds interesting. So I'd I'd done that, gone and worked in, you know, nothing too serious. I was working in a kitchen most of the time I was over there. Right before doing that, I had done some work experience in TV and while I was doing work experience in TV, I had had met someone who was uh, able to get me a week's work experience at the Guardian Sports Desk as well. So I'd had one week's work experience at the Guardian Sports Desk. Was it Barry? <laughs> no, it wasn't Barry, no. Um, so I got one week's work experience right before um, going away on that sort of year. Well, it didn't end up being a year because I got this job off to come back for the Border National Peerful Series, but six months whenever I was in Canada. And I... Um, had enjoyed it and I'd stayed in touch basically with the Guardian Sports Desk. So when I came back and I was doing my work for the TV documentary series, I um, you know, was a researcher One, they paid you peanuts. It was really hard to live in London and afford to live in London. And I got back in touch with the Guardian Sports Desk and I got during that time I did some night shifts. I don't know if Baz will remember this role, but there was like a night uploader and night editor role. And yeah, you'd come in and you would because that was, the Guardian was like ahead of everyone in putting all of the newspaper content online. The job was literally like newspaper content drops into an online management system. You need to put it on the website and make the, the pages look nice. So I did have my sort of foot in the door a bit at the Guardian. To me, it didn't feel at the time like journalism work. Like it felt like it was just like an extra sort of like, um, you know, temping job to make some extra money so I could afford to, to be in London. Yeah, that, relationship definitely then helps me because at the end of my time on the TV documentary series, um, I decided I didn't want to go into journalism. I went and did a 20-week NCTJ journalism course at um, Highbury College in Portsmouth. And um, during that time, I got some more work experience at The Guardian because they wanted to do that as part of the course. And at the end of that course, um, right as we were doing the exams, actually, it was a 2006 World Cup and The Guardian needed more hands on deck. In the office during the day, so I went from having done the night shifts before to doing some day shifts on the on the Guardian online sports desk, which again, as far as I know, it was completely separate to the um the 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 newspaper desk at that time. There was the online desk and the new and the newspaper desk, and yeah, it all kind of went from there. Like right after the um the World Cup, a, a really a lovely journalist, someone, someone I think was a brilliant journalist, but obviously decided to go and take a different path. Georgie left the Guardian sports desk, and there was an open spot, and for a while they had us doing shift work. It was me and a few others and at a certain point I got offered a press association traineeship and I said to The Guardian, I'm going to take this unless you give me a job and incredibly they did give me a job so I stayed.
2: Which was after, as Peter writes, you did work experience at the Leamington Courier which included (laughs) a feature about what was on your mp3 player. Do you remember... What was on your MP3? No, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what an MP3 player is? <laughs> question. Uh, all right, that'll do for part one. We'll be back in a tick.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST.
2: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Joseph says, uh, No questions. Just want to say, as an American listener, I've always enjoyed Nikki's wisdom and gentle humor. I don't know how you are with compliments, Nikki. I, I'm, I, I don't get many, so I find it much easier to, to <laughs> take the in, insults. I, I don't know if her personal life will be touched on, but having just recently learned more about her, please pass on my admiration for her courage and grace. Um, uh, Pylon says, "I'm pretty sure it's out of bounds, but I'd love to hear about her transition. I kind of feel she might not want to talk about this, unless I'm wrong. Um, but I was wondering if everything went well for her, especially in Italy. Look, look, we talked about this very briefly on the on the pod on the LGBTQ plus special we did a few months ago, um, and obviously we've talked about it before. You're you're sort of happy to talk about this, and aware that if me or Barry ask something stupid or get our language wrong or whatever, you will." instantly pull us up on it
3: yeah no i i think it's it's probably like pretty unrealistic to try and have any sort of discussion of my life that that doesn't bring it in because i mean as i already mentioned i got sent to an all-boys school when i was a kid which you know now feels like something really odd but yeah it's hard not to talk about it so um you know within reason i'm open to talking about it
2: (laughs) so so like what age do you feel different is that a silly question
3: Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's. I know it's a silly question. It's a complicated question because I think like um, people in all sorts of things in their like self understanding. arrive at like mature understandings of themselves at different ages you know some people have a very sort of clear idea of who they are when they're very little and some people don't and I'm not just talking about gender here you know like I, I've heard people talk about this with reference to to things they wanted to do in their life to like you know their interests to like the things that become their that shape their career to their sexualities as well like some people talk about knowing very clearly that they fancy people of certain genders when they're very little and, and some people don't and and I think all those things are like yeah are, like things that you can come to at different levels of clarity. And I think, like, as a kid, I can sort of talk about all sorts of things that um, seemed obvious to me. Like, it seemed obvious to me that it would be better if I was a girl, but, like, it didn't seem like a real thing to, like, do. Mm. Like, it didn't seem like that was an option. And that was just, you know, one of those things that you, um, that you had were all shaped by, like, the course of events around us as well. And, you know, I think I was probably wrestling with it much more for a little while as I sort of, approached the teenage years and then something quite big happened in my life which was that my father passed away and and I think like um there was a real moment for me of like you mustn't cause a fuss now like you know like things are quite hard at the moment and like now's a good time to like just get on with everything and I think we Mm. probably all did that as a family sorry too much my rest of my family but I think we all sort of had this sort of mindset for a long time of, you know, if nobody's dying, then everything's all right. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of a juncture that who knows if you go back in time, how things might've worked out differently, but, um, you sort of go down a different path. And then after that, it becomes something that you sort of swallow for a long time and, and other things happen in life. And you, um, I don't know, I I think you can get to a point with certain sort of things and, and, I don't know if I like the word denial because denial is like sort of implies you're doing something really consciously to me. And I think it's it's not always as conscious as that, but I think you do sort of, um, and again, I, I think it doesn't, it doesn't just refer to gender. I think people do this with all sorts of parts of themselves, but you sort of tell yourself that something isn't important. You tell yourself that, yeah, this isn't great, but I can deal with it. This isn't great, but I can deal with it. And some of those things over time just creep up on you and they become more and more a thing that you realize you have to deal with and yeah you know I I think there's there's a a big part that goes on behind the scenes that that even sort of though this is no longer talking about childhood this is adulthood and, and it's much more recent I think now when I try and think back clearly about like the process of how you get to where you are today some of it seems sort of hard to even sort of recall with clarity because there was so much emotion going on there was so much difficult stuff going on but I went to therapy for a long time like I went to therapy for a long time and I started talking about these things I hadn't talked about and um at the beginning of that therapy I I still was telling myself that we wouldn't end up where we are today because it seemed like something impossible and and horrible and like it was just going to destroy my life and everyone was going to hate me and that was going to be the end of everything and um you know I'm quite glad that has worked out not to be the case um there was some horrible difficult bits along the way but um, I, I I feel like I've sort of arrived at the other side of it quite happy
2: I sort of, over time does it become more or consuming like because when we were talking about these things like oh I went to Canada for six months I was working on this documentary and it's sort of hard enough to do all these things and you know working weekend shifts was was this at the front of your mind for all of that or is there days where you just don't sort of think about it?
3: I think there's there's plenty of days when you don't think about it because there's of course there's days when you don't think about your gender like you're, you're busy and I think one thing I've always been very good at is keeping myself busy um you know Canada is an interesting chapter again because I I could point to some very clear memories that that happened up time like you know up before I went to Canada I think honestly in my entire life very possibly I'd met some without knowing but I'd never knowingly met a trans person um and so like the only exposure I'd had to trans people was in um uh, God, I remember reading one newspaper article about uh, a guy in England um uh who was sort of um a trans guy and I um remember um trans women on Jerry Springer. That's that's where I remember seeing trans people when I was when I was growing up. And then I went to Canada and I I yeah met some trans people very briefly. Like they still weren't sort of people who I sort of saw regularly. They were just the people who I sort of whose paths I crossed with briefly. There were moments in that period when it was like you know maybe you should try and actually like find those people and talk to them about these things and and do it but again like you know some things sort of um i don't know it, it's it's hard again to explain with clarity what i'm thinking when i'm 20 years old cuz i'm not 20 years old anymore it's a long time ago but some things just seem so sort of impossible that you just sort of tell yourself that's impossible. And so, you know, you can feel sad about it. And there was lots of sort of times when there was sadness about it or like, you know, um, angst of some kind about it, but you don't necessarily take the next logical step, which is that I can do something about this. And again, I I do think like I was very good and I've always been good at being busy. Like I'm very good at like, I'm going to go go to work, do the work I'm going to do. Oh, I'm going to go and keep myself socially busy and go and like have friendships. And, I, in some ways when you talk about doing those two jobs when I was um, starting out that's like the prime example of just be busy like just keep working and you know that's a good thing to do and work has always been one thing that I think I feel like nobody can tell you off for like if you're doing work then you're providing a good value to the, the world and that's a good thing to be doing
2: So so then that moment where, oh, my, it's probably not a moment is it where you actually can't, you, you realise or you decide you can do something about this is that a moment of liberation or is that an incredibly stressful time or both?
3: I think it's too simple to call it a moment. Um, you know, I, I, I had a coming out moment to my, um, uh, my, my then spouse. I was, I was married. I think that's been talked about on the podcast before as well. Um, who's someone who, um, is an incredible person who I'm still very lucky to have in my life. Um, but I, uh, you know, that was the first person I ever said anything to about it in the world. And it was not a liberating fun moment. It was it was a panic attack and a breakdown. Yeah, that was sort of a, an incredibly difficult moment that um was sort of a first moment if you want to talk about moments. And then I suppose there's there's moments along the way after that that are different levels of difficult and and um and joyful. Like there is joyfulness that comes, but it's not it's not a moment for me. Like it's, there's sort of steps that sort of you get to, but I think especially like probably because of that relationship, which was a great relationship and is, you know, is still a great relationship, just a different kind of relationship. Um, I think that sort of unpicking that became its own story. But even before that, again, like it wasn't like I sort of had this moment of like, clarity, like, I'm going to transition. I had this moment of, I need to talk about this. Like, I can't, you know, continue forever not talking about something that is in my head so often. And, I, you know, that's where it starts. And so, yeah, where the sort of moment is, I don't know after that. Like, everything sort of feels like it's more of a a process that unfolds.
2: There was this time where you'd come out privately, but, you know, you were working with us and with other people, um, and you hadn't. And that must have been a very strange time
3: yeah it was an incredibly awkward uh time to be honest um uh because again but then you know coming out comes in different forms you know the coming out to my ex is i need to talk about this uh coming out to you know close friends and family is at first that relationship is is breaking down because everyone knows you in your relationships don't they and and i need to explain to you why that's happening you know that's still not the point of me saying and I'm, I'm transitioning. That's the point of me saying like there's some hard stuff I'm going through. And yeah, then there is this this process, as you say, of of actually sort of um, starting to take steps towards what will eventually become, you know, it's a medical process as well. In my in my case, it, it isn't for everybody. Everybody has their own journey. And um, yeah, as you're sort of starting to make those steps, there's sort of this growing awareness that you are going to have to go, because you do a public facing job, you're going to have to go public, which um, was, yeah, it was, it was a really stressful, hard time because you're sort of constantly worried about, is someone going to work this out before I say something? And also like, when is the right time to say something? And I I had some help from someone um, really wonderful who um, actually, again, my ex introduced me to, who um, deals with crisis communications for companies who like talked to me about like how you how you can approach these these things differently and and you know she said to me like you know you can um there are really like two big options which is that you either let the information just uh leak out slowly and and you don't have this sort of big sort of moment of everyone focusing on you and there's some advantages to that and disadvantages to that or you take ownership of it and the advantage of that is you take ownership of it. There's no gossip. There's no one. Some things, and and so there was a decision point about doing that, which obviously is when I write my article and, and do a video. But like, there's there's a build up period in which, yeah, you're you're worried about how you're being perceived. Obviously, you're growing my hair out, which of course people are going to joke about. Like, of course they are. Like that's like a normal thing to to do.
2: I cringe at me and Barry, like, oh yeah, you just joking about you having a sort of midlife crisis or just something I can't remember. Like you'd come, you know, on the pod. <laughs> And I just
0: think, oh, you know... My toes still curl when I think back to... I think you'd moved to Brighton, you'd grown your hair long, and you were talking about going clubbing. And I, we, it was a running joke that, you know, you're a midlife crisis. And then when when you made your big announcement, <laughs> I was just... Oh, Christ. I mean, it was so much to deal with. Yeah. You know, as a standalone thing, but then... Obviously, being completely self-centered, <laughs> I immediately thought, oh, Christ, <laughs> I'm going to look really bad here.
3: <laughs> I, I honestly think, like, um, you know, I think the, the majority of people who I work with have been brilliant. I think this podcast has been brilliant. I really do. like, and, and that goes to you as well, Baz. Like, you don't need to feel like guilty about things you said when, like, you know, you didn't know. Like, there's, there's, there's not a thing that you should be feel bad about. Um, there's only a very small minority of people within journalism who, at least to my face, um, I'm sure things have been said about me when I haven't been present, um, have been, have been, uh, unpleasant and, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I get it. Like I have friends, like if your friend suddenly starts acting differently, you're going to say something about it. And if you're a real friend, probably like your natural mode is to joke about it rather than to say something earnest because, well, I mean, you said earlier, Max, I did live in America for two years. They're often a bit more earnest in America, but in England, generally, when someone, you know, wants to be sincere with a friend, they they make a joke, don't they?
2: I remember really overthinking, like, when you were first coming in and sort of, like, wanting to be sort of over-supportive going, in, you know, I obviously, like, you'd come on the pod, I'd just say, all right. And when you came, I was like, oh, do I... No, no, I should give you a hug, and then I—I just—I distinctly remember going, you sort of saying, "Oh, we're hugging, are we?" And we're going, "Oh shit! Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't have. Ah, oh, fuck! What
3: I was being awkward, right? Like I was awkward at that moment. I'm instead sort of interacting with with all of you guys in a different way in the first time. Uh, so like, it—it's awkward for everyone. Like, and and I'm there uh, sort of feeling very guilty for making people feel awkward. Like, I, it's never been a thing I want in my life to make other people feel awkward. I mean, God, that's, that's a whole different topic, frankly, because sometimes when you read too many news headlines, it's like existing as being trans can be made to feel like it's something that's putting everyone else out, which is, you know, not why anyone transitions. Mm. I, 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 yeah, I think we muddled through pretty well. Honestly, I, I think we muddled through pretty well. How,
2: how do you, I mean, To be fair to Bears, you did that video and his tweet, first tweet was, I thought it was big news. I thought you were joining The Athletic. It was really,
0: really funny.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: That video, like it knocked me sideways. I I had a little heads up I think an hour before it was posted. And it completely knocked me sideways. It's probably the most shocking news I've ever heard in my entire life. And I was really worried on your behalf that people will be unpleasant to you. Or I'm just wondering, has that happened? Like, say, on trains or just walking down the street or going about your business, whatever.
3: I think that's like a really sort of interesting. When you go through the looking glass, which sometimes it feels like I have, um, it, it you you do get this very odd experience of people treating you differently, and it becomes hard in lots of situations to know when, like you're being treated differently because you're being perceived as one thing or another. Like, is this because I'm transgender? Is this because I'm a woman? Like these things are unclear. Like when I talk about in our work, like if someone's posting under a YouTube video as has happened, or back in the kitchen, or whatever. Oh, that's probably mm. just straightforward sexism. Um, if uh, if uh, someone is is lamenting, you know, when did Sky Sports get so woke? Is that because I'm trans or is it because I'm a woman? It could be either, because I'm on there with another woman, you know, Mina Riziki, and like that could be either, right? Like, you know, that's that's um, that stuff is is blurry. I think um, you know, probably more earlier in my transition, there was some overt transphobic stuff that went on like and yes I've been shouted out in the street um and uh I've been uh yeah I've I've, I've had sort of some some up close personal abuse from people who I've never met in my life which is is not a pleasant thing to happen and yeah then there's also like, the other part of it which is things that every woman journalist who covers sport deals with there's there's been situations like even coming back from the 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 euros final going back to my hotel in London there was a, a a guy sort of following me and saying sexual stuff and then you know calling me a frigid bitch and all the rest of it and like me having to sort of scurry by Marylebone to like a random couple i saw walking just so i was walking with someone um yeah like it, it definitely like it is less safe in society in lots of situations to not be perceived as a man like that is that is a thing um and again like the times when it's about being trans can be horrible and the times when it's about being a woman can be horrible and they're, they're both sort of present and yeah unfortunate side effects i suppose to getting to live in a more authentic way
2: there's probably not an exact answer to this question either i guess but you know and and this part is about you and your career and your life it's not about trans rights right whether in sport or anything else i, I wonder as you know do you become more comfortable in your own skin as every year goes by but does it get harder to be a is it becoming harder to be trans or or easier to be trans i mean the headlines would you know would perhaps mean it's harder i don't know
3: yeah i i, I don't know how to answer that question um i think there's sort of um in some areas greater acceptance and in some areas quite plainly sort of greater hostility i mean right now we're the political football like i'm sure you know well, not, I'm sure. Like, clearly, migration still is for lots of people as well. But right now, like, the number one culture wars topic in this country and in America is trans people. And, um, you know, every British newspaper, including the one that publishes this podcast, has carried some articles that I personally think have been incredibly unhelpful. And I think there's this sort of constant linking of trans people with uh, crimes committed by a sort of tiny minority that is being re-imprinted over and over again as as what people think about when they think about trans people. In the same way as after terrorist attacks, the media will just impress on the population that this is a Muslim problem, for instance, as was certainly the case for for a long time in Britain. Now this is a trans problem. And, you know, most people in the world don't care about it, but enough do that you do get nasty scary people out there who are going to do nasty scary things and 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 attack you for it so it it is a bad time in that regard and you know this this comes to things that I think um a lot of trans people do and you know trans is a, a a big umbrella and and different people experience their lives in different ways but as someone who I suppose has transitioned in quite a binary way there are definitely times when you just sort of hope for your safety that you're not being perceived as trans because it's just easier to just be perceived as not that because of those risks. But speaking sort of just personally, which is all I can do, um, I've tried in most things to just get on with it and do what I've always done in my life, which is just to be myself and and let people take me as they take me. Um, you do have to weigh that up in some situations against personal safety. And as I talked about at the time, there's, for instance, the Qatar World Cup it was simplified for me because Italy didn't qualify but could i have gone and been safe i don't know the answer to that and and that stuff's pretty grim
0: philippa york does punditry on uh, major cycling events and a couple of weeks ago i think it might have been during the giro d'italia her co-commentator referred to her successes when she was cycling under the name robert miller a very Very successful Scottish cyclist. And I did, I noticed somebody on, a couple of people on Twitter got very offended on her behalf because he had dead named her, you know, used her Robert Miller name that she used to go by. And she went on Twitter and said, Look, I have no problem with this. I was a cyclist. I rode under the name of Robert Miller. Now I'm Philippa York. And these people continued to be offended on her behalf. And I just found it really weird, their their attitude, and, and very unhelpful as well. I'm not sure what kind of point I'm trying to make here, but maybe it's just the toxicity of this ongoing debate. But when she had made it clear, I have no problem with my co-commentator referring to my successes as Robert Miller uh, and using that name, um, I've made it clear I have no problem with it. And they still say, no, no, he's bang out of order. He shouldn't have done that. He's offending all trans people.
3: I, I think that's that's a complicated dynamic. i I didn't follow this story, so i I don't know anything about it. Um, and I think that everyone has the right to sort of ex- experience things like their old names as as they do. And if that's how Philippa feels, and I, I would certainly say, well, that's Philippa's um thing to worry about, not mine. but um, but I also understand that for a lot of trans people it is something that they prefer not to have talked about. Um I think it's harder for those of us who were public figures before transitioning because you kind of can't as easily sort of, just sort of pretend that wasn't a thing, so you 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 experience that differently. Um, but I I understand everyone's emotion in that, and I do think if there was one thing that I think would benefit this whole discourse, honestly, it would be that tomorrow someone just deleting Twitter from the world because I think it was already a an unhelpful place in many of these discussions, and I think that since a particularly unhelpful, willfully unhelpful person. Took charge. It's become an even more unhelpful place for these discussions.
2: Nikki, thanks so much. I mean, it, I don't know if it means a lot, but I just don't honestly, and just see you as someone who's good on the pod. You know, that's it, and like, and that's sort of how it should be, right?
3: I think that's that's all you. That's all you really want. That's all you really want. Um, it's just to be able to well, It's all I wanted. I can't speak for anyone else, but all I wanted was to be able to get on with life and and be myself. And and I think that this podcast has always allowed me that. All right.
2: Well, we'll do more in just a second welcome to part three of the guardian football weekly life and time special with nikki bandini sam says i know nikki is a guna like myself does she have an italian team i've always assumed it was inter
3: so the real answer now is that that i don't and and i i think like if you spent a season even in my shoes covering the league and 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 experiencing that way you do experience there's these things differently and and I think that um really like what you want as a journalist is interesting stories and that's the number one thing um but if you'd ask me when I was I don't know 15 or 16 because all my cousins sport inter I definitely had a spot for inter and if you have Paid attention to the podcast long enough, you'll know that I even had some cousins uh, not so long ago who were on the books to Inter. So, yes, I I have some connections to Inter that that are probably a bit different. But, um, you know, the, the best way I can explain it is what I've always sort of said, which is in my dream world where Arsenal are winning the league every season, I wouldn't get bored of that. Whereas if Inter won the league, I would be happy for my cousins, but I kind of would be more hoping the next season they didn't win it again because it's more interesting to write about. It's right. more interesting to write yeah, about yeah, if yeah. you've got different teams winning well, than if you've got competition.
2: It, football changes when you work in it, doesn't it? In in every in yeah. every way, I think. Uh, Tony says, why are there such differences between Italian and English football? Do you think these differences will diminish over time as we import, export more players and managers?
3: It It's way too big a question because it, it goes to like it goes to like how you're brought up, like how you experience football. Like everything like in your national culture affects how your football is different, which is why every country has its own sort of football identity and different things. The, the sort of big picture of, of is it different? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, Italian football has got a different mindset that I think comes to to, to cultural things. And do managers go crossing countries change things? Yes, they, they definitely do, right? Like there's there's so much sort of cross sort of cultural um learning that goes on at the highest level of football anyway and i think italy in some ways was was ahead of the curve on this anyway because there's a manager school of Coverciano where managers are all writing their thesis every time they graduate and 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 you've got this sort of desire to in some ways make it academic um i think there's always been some of that um but i think the countries never completely lose what they are because still the majority of managers, the majority of sort of players in the pyramid, maybe not in the top divisions, uh, are still growing up in Italy with an Italian outlook on, on the world.
2: You've interviewed some, you know, pretty big Italian stars, you know, Totti, Buffon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a most memorable one or, or memorable moment covering, covering Italian football?
3: I mean, some of the most memorable moments covering Italian football, honestly, this season, because uh, a Milan derby in the semi-final of the Champions League is something that you don't, you know, yeah. you don't get to experience. Um, so, getting to cover those both for Stan was something really special. Um, interview is without question. Gigi Buffon. I've interviewed him a few times, but there was one in particular, um, which my I uh, know was my second sit down with him, and uh, I was doing it for Eight by Eight magazine, and they had a photographer. Roger Neve, who's um this brilliant um Dutch photographer who I think does a lot of fashion. I don't think I know he does a lot of fashion shooting as well. And he's got this way of sort of disarming footballers. Like he 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 manages to sort of get them to lean into the silliness of like these stupid photo shoots that he does. And and I think he sort of helped me on that occasion to really sort of bring out the playfulness and the and the fun in Buffon. And we ended up having this sort of huge conversation that went on for a really long time and I'd come in with as I always do I never come with like a fixed list of questions but I come with like topics I think I'm going to talk about and I had a big list of topics I wanted to talk about and instead we got into this like whole conversation about the meaning of life and I was just like I don't know like it was one of those really like cool moments where you're like I'm sat here with Gigi Buffon who at a certain point before I was doing this was this sort of mythic figure and he's talking to me about what he thinks the meaning of life is and yeah it was it was a really cool conversation so um
2: did you and did you and Gigi Buffon work out I, the meaning of life do you know
3: what's awful is I'm saying that I the only thing I can't remember exactly what he said so you'll have to go back and double check the uh the interview <laughs> the date, but, I mean he, he talked he talked about um night I'm I'm gonna say go find it because I'll, I'll butcher Bye. it and it won't be as good as he said it. So yeah, go and find it. Maybe I'll I'll see if I can find the link and cause I'm pretty sure it's online and, and get George to post it in the in the notes. But um that was that was a really fun interview. Um um I've been really lucky to have some really really fun interviews in my career and uh, uh but that's that definitely stands out
2: I want to touch on the states a bit I, I mean our timeline's all over the place but like, wh- when did you go and was that sort of NFL based or or did your love of NFL come from being over there
3: no my NFL enthusiasm is another thing that goes back to to friends in school like you know something that there's channel four to- and
2: and <laughs> Luckhurst and Gary Imlack?
3: no it was a bit late for that it was Sky uh, Sports um fine. Sky Sports. I, I first got interested in the NFL because we had a family holiday to America where we met some um, family friends of, of my parents and uh, had the game explained to me and was like, oh, this is better than I thought it would be. This is less sort of boring and in, inscrutable than I thought it was. And when I came back and talked to someone at school who was like, oh, I love the NFL. And so we sort of developed an interest from there. Um Going to America in 2012 was actually like nothing to do with me. My ex got a Fulbright scholarship to study in the States and I was like, yeah, go on, let's do it. Why not? Like how many times right. do you get this, this random excuse to go and live in a different country and Missouri of all places? And um, yeah, it was it was a really cool experience. I and mean, when you talk about interviews, I ended up writing the autobiography of Jimmy Nielsen, who was a, a player for Sporting Kansas City at the time. And as a series of interviews, but that's probably even even more enjoyable interviews because that was really someone who like, when you're doing an autobiography, like they want to let you get under their skin and understand everything. That was, that was a real privilege and a a fun thing to do.
2: Owen says, is there the same sort of snobbery or stigma around British people covering the NFL as there is here when we hear an American covering football?
3: I think there's like a shock when like you talk to Americans and they're like, oh, you actually understand. But to be honest with you, like, I mean, this is another of those things that like, when I talk about the through the looking glass moments, you know, I covered the last uh, Super Bowl for the Guardian, and like, I had more than one cab driver, like when I was t- telling that I was there for the Super Bowl, being like, "Oh, but do you like? Do you really like it? Like, do you are you really into it? Like, do you actually yeah. understand <laughs> it?" I'm like that's you know, that's sexism basically. But like, you know, it 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 it's it's definitely yeah. like combined with the English accent. I'm sure, like, um, part of it, um. I actually sort of look back on that and think it was such a sort of odd thing because for a while I was I was doing a regular column for the NFL's UK office on the St. Louis Rams because at the time they were the London team that came over every year. And I remember like having this conversation with um, the reporters there, like the regular beat reporters, like some a couple of them in like the, the press room at the Rams training facility. And at the time I hadn't covered a single NFL regular season game, but I covered several Super Bowls. And like I said this, and like all these guys who cover the sport Every like week, who've never got to cover a Super Bowl, are like, sure. "Excuse me, like what?" Yeah. So yeah, like it's,
2: it's- massive glory. Hunter. Yeah, exactly. Just fly in for the big games. Um, Serbo says uh, favorite city in Italy and why non-footballing reasons. Can you get the best pasta there, or is that somewhere else?
3: <laughs> well, the good news is I am going to say the place that I think you get the best pasta, which is Bologna. Um, the reason is that I'm biased because my dad's hometown is like an hour away. In, in the hills but so you'd always go through Bologna and and I I, I get to the go there a lot um, but I think Bologna is like I put it right at the top of places I'd tell people who have got like a bit of interest in Italian football to have a city break because you go to Bologna best best pastor in so the country nice. in my opinion obviously like the reason we call it's spaghetti bolognese in England is actually ragu from Bologna originally. It's something a bit different over there, but it's it's amazing. Um but they also have cappelletti, in Brodo, there's there's all sorts. And um I really like it as well just to visit because it's it's not too big, Bologna. You can like station yourself quite centrally and just walk everywhere. It's really pretty. You've got the little towers, like all of it is all of it is gorgeous. And the football stadium, again with a little tower, is is I think one of the the sort of understated lovely places to go. Obviously go to San Siro, like whatever you do, go to San Siro while it's still in use. But um, Renato dell'Ara is also a lovely stadium to go to.
2: Henrik says, what is Sticky's Desert Island Italian meal? And is it from a specific restaurant or homemade?
3: <laughs> I mean... I I I think probably like if I was choosing one meal, it would be. Yeah, I was going to say my mum's lasagna, but I can make it too now. So like, it's my lasagna. Okay. Like I I think lasagna, like done well, is is really really good. Um, but it's a desert island, so it's quite hot. Do you want something that stodgy?
2: Do you want lasagna yeah. on a desert island? Mean, you don't really want, you know, because I
0: yeah, it's, it's shouldn't the question be your your des- <laughs> no meal rather than your maybe. Because you've got to get sick of it if you, you're having that's it every true. single okay, you're, day you're, on a desert death island.
2: meal is your own lasagna, which means you get to cook. So you like you could really you could slow cook the ragu and sort yeah. of give yourself a bit more time. And shank the prison guards with the knife. That's, that's absolutely <laughs> Tried true. Try to escape. <laughs> um, uh, finally, Matt says, favourite Italian expression?
3: I think the one that's in my head is... Uh which is like there's no more tripe for the cats which is such a weird like ridiculous like phrase like but because <laughs> tripe for the cats but like you know it's sort of it's i guess when you're in a you're in a more lavish state when there's tripe for the cats and when there's not um things have changed
2: <laughs> um uh, nikki thanks so much for doing this um and uh yeah thanks appreciate it, it was great
3: no problems anytime
2: thanks paz thank you Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens.
0: This is the Guardian.